and welcome back to Open School of Business. Please rate, review, and subscribe because it helps us so much with uh, finding more listeners uh, and reaching wider audiences. Thank you so much, my friends, for your support. Hello, Dan. Welcome to the show. Uh, I'm very happy you could make it. Uh, uh, can you start off, please, uh, with information about your uh, company? Uh, what do you offer today, and where are you based? Well, thank you, Inara. First, let me say it's a pleasure to be with you, and I told you earlier, I love your concept. I love your framework, the Open School of Business, and it's a pleasure to exchange with you today. I'm Dan Nornberg. I'm an executive advisor, coach to uh, leadership teams, and uh, my focus is working with leadership teams to help them play at their best because in my 30 years of working in business, both as a line manager and also as an executive coach and advisor, what I saw is that there's a lot of activity around leadership development for the individual, first-time leader, project leader, team leader, and things of that sort. And I did that for many, many years. But what I discovered was through a long and winding journey, which we may talk about today, is that we move to the upper levels of the organization. Is that, um, and particularly as we look at leadership teams, we see highly ambitious people, motivated people, people who know a lot about their particular business area. But as a leadership team, they don't really work together as a unit and they underestimate how that inefficiency in their leadership team impacts the entire organization. So this became a new thrust and new passion for me. And the primary focus of my work now is working with senior leadership teams in small and large organizations and learned a lot about that and wrote a book about that. And that's the nature of my work. Yeah, uh, I think this is very applicable, especially in the early days of startups, because everyone you hire ends up being a leader of their own function later on when the company scales and becomes bigger. So um, if you as a startup um, or a small business company lay the foundation early enough, it will be easy to scale and uh, grow organically and have that culture uh, from the beginning. So in, in your work, where, when was that aha moment for you when you realized that something is wrong in the way we are raising leaders and what can be done to prevent that? That's a very good question. I'd say it was sort of the, the triangulation of three things. First of all, I'm an avid reader and uh, I like to read about leadership and what's happening and what's not happening. And I mean, statistically, if we look at the statistics and, you know, follow the trends of the big consulting houses and what they tell us is that only one out of five executives think they're part of a high-performance leadership team. And 70% of leaders don't think that the leadership team that they're a part of really adds any value. And 60% of leaders say that trust is an issue in their team. So we see statistically that there's a problem there. Um, secondly, as I mentioned earlier, as I started to escalate into the C-suite and work with leadership teams, I saw just loads and loads of talent. But the challenge is at the very top of the organization, whether it's a startup or a mid-sized company or a large-sized company, because there's so much power and because of their, let's say, maybe executive presence that they have, they don't get a lot of support for the problems that they have, and they often don't talk about 
the problems or struggles that they have. It's very lonely at the top of an organization. And thirdly, if we look at other constellations where it's so important to collaborate for a good result, whether it's a, an orchestra or a basketball team or a football team or even a cricket team for that matter, and if we look at how these men and women develop themselves to play at their best, they don't all run off with an individual coach and only show up on game day to play. And my belief is that in my practices about it, we've been spending too much time coaching players when we should be coaching teams. And, uh, and I think it's particularly relevant to come back to the point that you made earlier, particularly in a startup situation. I was speaking with a founder today, and they've just raised close to 10 million euros on a very exciting venture. The thing is, is that if you're a founder of a, of a business or part of a founding group, you're doing that because of a burning passion, you're solving a problem, or you've got a great idea that you want to move to market. There's always something to work on, on that idea or in that business. It's either hiring or scaling the business or getting funding or things like that. And often in a startup situation, also at a senior management level, what we see is they ignore the oxygen mask rule. You know, it's what we learn on every airline, right? We get on a flight to go to any destination from any airline. The thing tells, they tell us is, you know, what you've got to do first of all, in case of a distressful situation, use the oxygen mask first and then help others. And I think that particularly in a startup situation, we're always so busy uh, trying to help others and get the next round of funding or build the system to take the product or service to the next level we often underestimate and fail to really say, how was our leadership team, how was the core leadership team functioning in this startup or in this business? And, uh, and I think it's an area that if you put some time into that, particularly if you're reading my book, for example, um, you'll pick up a few ideas that will not only boost the leadership team, but, it, but impact the rest of the organization in a big way. I think it's, um, you just nailed it about this analogy of team games and uh, companies it's just amazing like it's so like it's so foundational that and it's on the surface but somehow nobody uses that nobody hires just one coach for the whole company yeah everyone is doing individual coaching sometimes a company pays for it but a lot of times uh, people actually do it on their own they seek out their coach, um, they want to build their career better, so they invest in it. Um, but it really has to be from that point of view of a company and, and the company CEO uh, or even board of directors where they give the goals and, um, and state the vision so then the whole team can get together and, and gain skills that will make them uh, easier to achieve the goals and also easier to get along. So, you know, you have, when you're working, especially middle management or even the leadership team, you have your own function that reports to you and that's your team. And then you have the leadership team uh, where you're collaborating with other functions and you're reporting to CEO. Um, and you're deciding more uh, strategic things as also a team. But if you were to choose which team to be more loyal to, which one do you think it is that would be the best? 
Well, that's a, that's, a, that's a really good question, and I address this particular situation in my book. I call this managing the dilemma, because uh, when I'm coming in to work with a leadership team, and as you described, these men and women are running a particular function. It could be supply chain. It could be sales. It could be production. It could be R&D. And I'm, you know, engaging with them and asking them what they need, and they say, Dan, I just need people to leave me alone so I can run my business. And I say, well, what is your business? They say, well, it's supply chain, or it's sales, or it's R&D, or it's international relations. And what I try to point out is that, is that these men and women have a foot in both teams. So they're running their core function. They have, a, you know, maybe direct reports, and they have a large organization or small. But they also have a foot in the executive team. And part of my work, and the title of my book, is called Executive Owner Shift. And this idea means is how do we sh make those slight changes, those slight shifts that release breakthrough and potential in the leadership teams, which then in turn cascade out to the organization. So which team is more important? They're both very important. And most of the time, you know, we're fighting for resources for our particular team, our functional team that we drive. But those really, really highly evolved executive and strategic leadership teams recognize that I need to be able to play in both fields. Because at some point in time, you know, when, I'm, when we're highly involved as a leadership team, we can recognize that at some point I might have to make a decision or take a decision that might not reflect well on my particular business area, but it's better for the overall company. That's an explanation of making an owner shift so that we make a, maybe a compromise in our functional area in order to serve the larger business. And, you know, you made a couple of good points earlier just to come back to one of those about leadership development. So individual leadership development, or what I call leader development, is very important. It's essential to use a coach from time to time or go through a development program that allows you to sharpen your own personal leadership skills. But what I started looking closely at is the amount of resources and tools and inventories uh, that are available to the individual leadership scope. Nearly everything that we write about, that we design, that we design inventories about, is about leadership as an individual endeavor, as sort of a heroic, the heroic soloist, if you will. And the world is moving at such a speed. The complexity is cr increasing daily the workforce is becoming so diverse that it's not realistic or even fair to expect that one person, man or woman, can solve all the problems. We need highly evolved leadership teams that enable their organizations to navigate through these difficult environments. And that's why I believe that the next big thing in learning and development and to business evolution and success is focusing more on leadership as a team construct. Mm, I agree with that. I think um, it's great that you nailed all these things and you have uh, the book. Um, my question is a follow-up question about, you know, the leadership skills, individual leadership skills that you talked about and sharpening them. Uh, in your own experience, in your own career, you have, uh, you know, so many years of experience and you've... Um, worked for uh, many interesting companies and leadership roles. Um, can you share some of that journey and in your opinion, what are the biggest factors or 
what are the biggest qualities of a good leader and uh, how we can attain them? Yeah, good, good question. Well, to, let me, I'll start with the, perhaps a little bit of my background. You know, I grew up in Iowa, the Midwest, and um, my father was a football coach and a high school principal, actually the high school principal of the high school that I went to. This is not an easy endeavor to have your father, the high school <laughs> no. principal, where you go to school. And my mother was a elementary school teacher. So, you know, some kids grow up sitting on a tractor, going to the factory, going to the laboratory with their mother or father, or maybe working in a, in a, in a small business that they might own. And my parents were just totally into education. They believed that education was the great equalizer, that no matter what background you came from, uh, where you were, what side of the railroad tracks you were born, if you got a good education, you could go places. And Iowa is not known for a lot of things other than, you know, family, farming, church, sports, education, that kind of stuff. So I was really around education quite a bit. And, and as a result, that was my institution. So what that meant was whether it was in education or in sports, I was around a lot of what I called good leaders. Maybe they were teachers or coaches or maybe they were, uh, maybe they were church leaders. But I just grew up, you know, maybe like a small duck grows up, just being around really inspiring people who were interested in seeing me grow and be successful. So that really formed an imprint on me. And now years later, you know, I'm a leadership development person. I mean, that's my, that's my occupation. And I really enjoy my work, and I think I'm reasonably good at it. But it sort of breaks my heart at times to hear people say when I say, well, talk a little bit about some of the most inspiring leaders that you ever worked for. And some people will not raise their hand. And I'll think they didn't understand my question or something, and they'll say, well, Dan, no, I've never really worked with someone or for someone that was inspiring or that challenged me or that took an interest in my career. And I find that, you know, really, really sad. So I've, had, I've been really blessed with working around uh, uh, people that really inspired me. Also, in my early business career, studied psychology and criminology, thought I was going to go to law school, decided to work for one year, went to California, Land in this place called Silicon Valley, as it was just starting. And because I wasn't an engineer, I got into sales and marketing. But then again, I seemed to attract people who were really great leaders. And so I worked for several very inspiring leaders in California, which gave me a, a great background to maybe what I'm doing right now. So I feel very fortunate. Now, to come to your question, I would, I would put it in, in, in two parts. So for me, a leader, and for all the leaders that are listening out there, those that are inspired to be a leader, there are only three things that you really have to think about, right? I mean, the role of a leader, as complex as we make it, it's really about three things. It's about engaging others. How do I enable those around me to be successful, number one? Number two, how do I lead meaningful change, not change just for the sake of changing, not trying to drive people into a wall, but how do I anticipate changes in the business, changes in my customer, so that I can evolve and lead change in a meaningful way. And number three, it's about results. So am I able to create results uh, for the organization? And all three of those, those are the three main platforms or areas or fields that as a leader we need to excel. Now, coming back to my experience as an early leader, I was involved in some technology companies that were high-growth uh, companies, 
And so at a very early age, I found myself managing others who were sometimes 10 or 15 years older than me. And what I learned later, you know, was that I was really good at getting results. That's probably why I kept getting promoted, you know, from a territory manager to a branch manager to a regional marketing director because I was able to get results. But looking back now, I probably was too focused on the field of results and not enough around developing people or leading change in a realistic way because business and being successful was sort of my life. I didn't have a family at that time, and I probably push people a little bit too hard, which I'd like to think that I'm able to give back now in my role as a coach. So those are the three primary fields as a leader. And then to come to the second part of the question, what's really important in the leaders that I've worked with, and I've worked with a number of CEOs and startups and things like that, is I find that two human qualities that are not always, we talk about, you know, visionary and being very strategic, but I would say it's two things. It's one about being authentic. Uh, that if I ask people or if the listeners even think about the most, let's say, impactful leader they've ever worked with, and they even wrote down the characteristics that led them to say that's a really highly effective leader for me, and if I could put all those people together in a room, uh, while they might be different uh, nationalities and background and gender and things like that, I would be willing to bet that one characteristic that they all share is that the people would say that the person that inspired them was very authentic. Maybe they were very analytical. Maybe they were visionary. Maybe they could put people together. Maybe they were a good coach. But I'd be willing to bet that nobody would say, yeah, the person that I selected as the most inspirational leader, she wasn't very authentic. Because authenticity is something that we could really connect to. Um, and so that's number one. And the second, let's say, softer characteristic that I think is very valuable I'm seeing it more and more today, is the ability to express uh, vulnerability. That is, in the tipping point moments, when I've worked with leadership teams that were sort of either they were good trying to become great or they were really struggling trying to become good, there usually was a moment where the senior leader or members of that leadership team would express their frustration, their challenges, their difficulties, even their fears and concerns, and it became a tipping point. Um, and that led that team to rally behind those people that they would express themselves, and, uh, and that often led to uh, really monumental changes. So I think it's vulnerability, I think it's authenticity, and then the three big fields up above are about um, engaging others, uh, leading change, and creating results. Oh, wow. Thank you so much for that. It's, um, uh, it, it's a lot to process, and at the same time, uh, I want to go back to authenticity and sort of unpack it uh, because uh, I feel like it's a, a term that people use for describing different things. And so I'm wondering, what is authenticity for you? Well, I'm going to be a little bit of a bad boy here. Nora. I'm going to flip that back to you because <laughs> um, if you don't mind, if yeah, you don't sure. mind. Um, because, you know, I like, I'm a coach, and so sometimes I'll ask the question back. But if I could ask you, what, do the, what does authenticity mean to you? Well, for me, uh, authenticity, I think, is first of all being honest, which mm -hmm. is not hiding, not trying to put up some kind of facade and, and, and an image. And these days, that's kind of a, a trend people do go and they hire personal branding coaches 
and things like that. So for me, I guess authenticity would be to bring your whole self to the picture where mm -hmm. you don't mind sharing some personal information about yourself. Um, and, uh, but that's just the, you know, one part of authentic for me. Okay. <laughs> that's well, why let, I'm let like, me... I'm trying to unpack it. And I'm wondering yeah. what is your opinion? Cause that's well, just gonna, one I'm, side for I'm me. I'm going to share it, but I have one other <laughs> question for you, if I may. So but the just... second, I'm sorry, but there is a second part I think is okay. also important. Authentic person would follow their heart and their mm. passion. So if you're not in line with the values of a company, or if you don't um, necessarily buy into the company's vision or what they do, you're not passionate about it, that's already by, that would be by default by working there you're not being authentic. Unfortunately, I think a lot of people have to do that for quite some time. And I've done that myself in my career at some point. Um, but that's definitely the side that I think is more complicated. So there are two sides, you know, you can be authentic, you can be open as a person, but at the same time, if you're doing something you don't love, that authenticity suffers. Yeah, yeah. Very, very insightful. And I'm just going to ask one last question, then I'll come back to my thing. So let's just imagine that we had, we were doing sort of as, you know, asking stakeholders to give some feedback. Imagine that we had an authenticity index with 10 being extremely authentic. That means uh, being able to make full disclosure and also feeling very connected and purposeful. Um, so that would be the index that you sort of defined. And if I were to ask 10 or 12 people who know you well, um, either, either personally or professionally, how would they, where would they rate you on the authenticity scale index? 10 being very, very high, very authentic, one being a very theatrical player and not being true to self or making full disclosure. Mm, I'd probably score nine. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. You know, I haven't known you very long, but I just wanted to say that one of the reasons that I reached that I reached out to you, that I really wanted to connect with you, is that you came through in such a genuine, authentic way. The purpose of the Open School of Business and what you're doing, and you said something about learning is at the heart of everything I do. That really resonated with me. And I'm over here in Germany, and you that voice of authenticity and purpose, it just stood out. It was almost like a radar, and so. I don't mean to make you uncomfortable or put you on the spot, but what I want to use you also as an example to reflect back to some of your listeners as they think about, gosh, if Dan were to ask 10 people that surround me how, how authentic those that see me would rate me, and it's not about good or bad or right or wrong, but how do I express my authenticity, making full disclosure and being involved in work that I feel is purposeful or has deep meaning? What would people say? And so that's a little exercise that, that people can do. So um, uh, thank you for letting me um, use you as an example that we, I think we all can profit from that. But I would, I would certainly say that I would see you at very high on, on the authenticity index, which resonated all the way across the Atlantic to me <laughs> here in uh, Germany, and you're on the East Coast. Um, so I think that what I would, I would make a distinction. I would very much in line B, I think it's about disclosure and it's about purpose. That's about authenticity, being able to say what you feel and being confident that people will respect that. 
I think that's part of it. I would like to draw a slight distinction, if I may, between authenticity, honesty, and full disclosure. Because I think it's just important to say being authentic, uh, which is akin to being honest, is very important. But that does not necessarily mean that it gives me a license to be in full disclosure mode. Now, let me just give an example, if I may. I'm a married man, and I can tell you I'm, I am very, very happy. I think I've got the number one woman in the world. I mean, absolutely a gem. She's, she's my hero, if you will. And, and she's been my, my, my hero for many, many years. However, as a man, I could be sitting somewhere on the underground sometime, and maybe I look over and I see another woman, and maybe for a moment a thought drifts through my head. It's just, it's just a very flimsical, breezy thought. Now, I'm being authentic, I'm being honest, but I don't come home to my wife and say, oh, honey, I really love you, but by the way, I sat across from this striking woman, and here's what I was thinking when I saw her. That's an <laughs> example of full disclosure, which isn't really appropriate. You know, right. and so what I want to say is that being authentic is something that we want to strive for. Being honest is something we want to strive for, but that does not necessarily give us license to go in full disclosure. Uh, so there's maybe a little coaching point for people to think about and think, oh, I'm going to be really authentic now. I'm just going to like load the guns and let it go. You know, use discretion, be respectful, and think about other people's feelings on that. And the other thing that you mentioned, which maybe just a short coming back to, which could also be helpful for listeners was what we talked about sometimes when we're in a situation where maybe the work that we're doing isn't as purposeful or doesn't have the kind of meaning that we'd like it to. And I think there's two parts to that. One is, how can I make the best of any situation that I'm in? Because if I do, I will be, I will be, I will be guided to my higher purpose, number one. But the point is, is that, and I think for the listeners, is that if people are feeling stressed and one of the primary causes for stress is when we feel like we don't have choices. And just about for most of us in Western Europe and North America and in many other parts of the world, we always have choices. But if we feel that we don't have choices or we tell ourselves, I have to do this, uh, then we're going to become you know, perhaps more stressed. So keep in mind that, 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 that we want to always recognize that we have choices available to us and authenticity and honesty are good things to have, but does not necessarily lead to full disclosure. Anyway, mm. forgive me for no. my <laughs> No, I appreciate, first of all, I really appreciate uh, your comment um, about uh, Open School of Business and that you really believe in that vision and that it resonated with you. I, I, I'm really happy about that. I would like to uh, hear your experience um, about writing it, first of all, and uh, more importantly, how did you make it successful? How did you make it um, visible to all the people who would uh, find value in it? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. And I think that the lesson for me, and maybe I'm sort of deconstructing your question and thinking about what I learned from that and how I did that and how it might benefit the listeners is that I had never written a book before, and writing is, was not something that came easy to me. So I looked for a mentor or uh, a coach that I thought could help me at least frame my ideas. And there's a fellow who uh, lives up the road from you, uh, Dr. Alan Weiss, 
and um, he works with consultants and authors and people like you and I to help them sort of help them accelerate their strengths. And I took a short course with him that was about uh, outlining a book, how to develop an outline, uh, do some market research on how my book might become competitive, uh, who my target market was. And that was very, very helpful with me. And Dr. Uh, Weiss has written about 60 or 70 books himself. And he's quite, I would say that's one of his strengths, his writing. I wrote the book myself. But what I learned from him is he advised me not to write the book itself, but to develop the framework for the book. So develop the chapter synopsis, develop the subchapter. So I built a structure, uh, which I'm pretty good structurally at, at doing things, but it was, it was nice to have someone. So I would say that if you're someone who is going to do something that you, that you haven't done before, is either look around in your environment or look for a mentor that might help you create a frame with you so that you can build that. And that was my, that was uh, really helped kickstart what I wanted to do. And I think the second thing for me is I wrote this book, Executive Ownership, which is about my experience with leadership teams because I feel deeply that um, leadership teams are everything to the success of a company, uh, company's success. And for me, it was very important to write about something that I felt very, very deeply about. So uh, that's what I would advise people that are looking to do that. And the marketing of it has been just uh, a, a labor of love. I, uh, I haven't set out to sell a certain number of copies or to be on any bestseller list. What I am trying to do is to see that my book um, you know, lands in the hands of either leaders that are leading a leadership team or a member of a leadership team or that support leadership teams to be successful. And that's sort of my, my efforts, the grassroots efforts, which is going extremely well. I'm very, very happy with the reception I've had uh, thus far on the book. Oh, wow, that's really awesome. Um, but talking about books, it made me curious, uh, what do you think about the book, Five Dysfunctions of a Team? Because that one is very similar to what you're talking about, but at the same time different. So I wanted to have your opinion about it. No, it's it's well, it's it's a it's a very successful book, and um, I think I might even use that book as one of my competitive analysis of, of of the book. And I think what's very strong about that book um, is that it's written. The narrative in that book is written as a story and, and as one ongoing story, where in my book, I've chosen a, a, a number of different stories to represent particular points there. I think a second distinction from my book, to that book, which I think is very, very good and a very, very uh, good, well-selling book, is that my focus of my book is on more on the senior leadership teams, not just a team in general, but about teams that are managing larger organizations, which I think is this distinction there. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. both, and I both think I would add to that, that your, your stories are uh, real and there's uh, real clients you worked with, whereas uh, the story in the five dysfunctions is a story where it has been made up from a fictional point of view, but at the same time it's done so they can highlight some of the dysfunctions and, and the lessons that we can learn from it. So it's a bit different, um, but... Um, yeah, and one, one other thing I would say is that, you know, when I finally decided to make it from more just a... For me, it was going to be a workbook, you know, just so I could access... To, there are a lot of tools in the book about how I can accelerate growth in a leadership team. There are a lot of stories that talk about 
turning points that most teams will go through, about strategy, about creating good communication, about running highly effective meetings. But what I also recognized is that when I thought about then, when it, when it became a book, then I thought, well, you know, the executives and senior leaders, they don't have a lot of time and sometimes a short attention span. So I wrote the book in a way that you could pick up any chapter. If like, if, say that you just wanted to just do a little bit of a refresher on, gosh, is my strategy really, you know, how do I stress test my strategy? You could read chapter seven, which is on strategy, and you're gonna get two or three ideas that will definitely impact your strategic development in a positive way, or about developing relationships, or creating a feedback culture team. So each of the chapters is, can also be standalone. And, and I wrote it as quite compact, so you can you know, stick it in your bag. Um, you can stick it in your bag when you're traveling, and probably by the time you fly from New York to LA, you could, if you're a fast reader, probably get through the most essential ideas in the book. Um, so um, then, um, you know, you've done so many different business ventures, advised many people. Uh, are there any books that have been with you throughout your life that have made a huge impact on your thinking and, mm. um, and made a difference in your life? Well, books seem to come to me and maybe to others when you most need them. Uh, so, you know, there's always a reason for why a book lands up on your uh, nightstand or something at a particular time. I always think about that. Is it just a coincidence? I think it's more than that. Um, a couple of books that have really that I can go back to even in my mind that, that, that helped me uh, would be, um, I'm a, I think, Fountainhead from Ayn Rand uh, was a big book for me when I first came to Europe. I don't necessarily agree with all her philosophies of relativism, but the book has been a good standing about being your own person, having the courage to stand on your own feet regardless of what other people say. And um, I think another very powerful book for me has been um, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl about his experiences in a concentration camp and, uh, and about his, um, his uh, logotherapy uh, theory, which is another very powerful in how he was able to create a constructive perception of those things. Uh, so those were two books. And a fun book that's just helped me you know, keep, keep balance has been um, uh, Buddhism for Busy People by David, um, I can't Creechy or something, but it's, an, it's another book. That, those are two mm -hmm. or three that I seem to constantly go back to every year and sort of review. Oh, wow. That's great. Uh, I and just how about recently... you, if I can ask? Is there, <laughs> is there a book that, uh, that maybe, see, maybe I'm going to get a tip from you now. <laughs> well, there, there is one uh, connection there. It's uh, one of my favorite books that I always go back to is Eight Mindful Steps to Happiness. Mm. And that one has been written by a Buddhist monk. Um, and that one is sort of a framework. You can certainly divorce the religion from the practice. Um, but also if you take a look at the, uh, some of these notions and, and the moral ethical, uh, things that, uh, they, they, um, advise people to take on. Uh, they're not very different from anybody else's list. Mm -hmm. And that's what creates that universal belief that 
this is the right thing at the end, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, not harming others, not harming yourself yeah. uh, and letting go uh, of things that are not serving or of emotions that are not serving. So well, thank this you. Is I got it. I got a tip. I got a tip and probably some of your listeners did too. So thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and if there's anything else you would like to sort of add to encapsulate uh, your message for leaders and for entrepreneurs, what uh, that would be? Hmm. Well, I think that what I've learned now through my many decades, I try to look at what, what, were the, what were the sort of things that really helped me pivot and remain true to having a meaningful life. And I think it was um, learning to, I learned to recognize and leverage regret. Um, meaning that I had a situation in which maybe will be for another episode, who knows, another discussion, but I had a situation that left me feeling very regretful. And it was with me for many, many years. And um, I remembered what that tasted like. And actually, I'm in Europe today because um, I didn't want to experience any regret of not staying here. I was in LA, came over here to Europe for nine days. Near the end of my trip, I sort of had this dream that I was back in the States, which I love. I love the US. And I saw myself pushing a uh, car, two and a half cars, two and a half kids. But I always wondered, gosh, you've just been a short trip to Europe. Will you ever regret not spending more time here? And it was such a, it was such a profound feeling that I didn't want to be 80 years old when there was no time left on the clock thinking, gosh, I, maybe I should have stayed in Europe a little bit longer and learned a foreign language or something. But I didn't get on the plane and go back to L.A. I just took a train back to Munich where I didn't speak German. I didn't know a person. I didn't have any legal right to work. And then I built a seven-figure consulting practice, but with the help of many others. So that became the first um, experience of how I took a previous regret to sort of look out and say, you know, as I'm thinking about this decision and which fork in the road I want to take, which one 10 years from now, 15 years ago, would lead me to feeling regretful. And so if anything, I try to, I, I want to live a, a, a life without regret and, and to pursue things and do things, not because of what other people think I should do, but because they feel true to me. And that's what I would advise the folks listening is just be true to your heart and be good to yourself and not so hard on yourself and live a life without regret. Wow, so awesome. And thank you so much, Dan, for being here today. and sharing all that wealth of knowledge that you've accumulated throughout the years, throughout geographies and cultures, and bringing it all into here, into our podcast, um, and uh, sharing it with our friends. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you, Inars. You're a wonderful host, and I love your mission, and uh, wish you a lot of luck, and, and uh, thanks for having me.